Hello listeners and welcome to the Montel Weekly Podcast, bringing you energy matters in an informal setting. This week we return to Europe's gas market amid rising tensions between Russia and Ukraine. Would Russia cut flows? Or could the EU impose sanctions or an end to Nord Stream 2? What is Gazprom's game plan and what are the consequences for Europe's gas markets? Joining me, Richard Sverson, to navigate our way through these very important topics are two of the continent's most prominent experts in the field of Europe's energy markets. A warm welcome to you, Jonathan Stern of the Oxford Institute of Energy Studies. Thank you. And hello, Carlos Torres-Diaz of Restart Energy. Uh, excellent to have you back. Hello. Thank you, Richard. And hello, Jonathan. Great to meeting you today. Hi, Carlos. I want to start off by talking about current prices. Uh, we've seen some losses this week, and they seem to retrace uh, in the last few sessions. So, what's going on here, Carlos? I think the European balance is uh, having a, like it's looking a bit better now that we have had a like a strong uh, inflow of LNG coming into the European ports, and weather has been uh, a bit milder than it was before. So, this has helped. Uh, ease some of the concerns that there were on the on the tight supply that uh, like we saw in December. Uh, obviously, the prices still remain at a very high level compared to historical, uh, like what, like the normal average that we see previously, but uh, certainly a, a bit better than what we saw in December. Jonathan, if I can turn to you, I mean, could we see a return to what, what happened last year? I mean, this was when we see prices rise and fall by 30, 40% in one session. I mean, we could see that. And a lot of this really depends for me on these very sharp movements on a couple of things. Firstly, cold weather and the impact on storage. You know, storage is a big indicator for pricing. And any suggestion that we were suddenly going to empty storage very quickly by the, by the end of the winter, uh, now we're, you know, just a bit below 40% of storage, uh, that could spook people. And then there's always a situation where some players get caught out um, and, and suddenly have to meet a margin call or they suddenly have to do something which requires them to buy or sell uh, dramatically. And that can spook the market. Any suggestion that big players are moving quickly can spook the market. But rather like Carlos, I think, and I, I also hope that we're over the worst here in terms of sharp price movements. In terms of the price level, that's probably a different story. So what's your outlook for the price level for the remainder of you know, this quarter and beyond, Jonathan? Uh, here we are in, what are we, the second week of, uh, no, not quite the second week, of the first week of February. We've got six or seven winter weeks ahead of us. And at the moment, things, look, don't, things don't look too bad, but we're not going to see that price fall dramatically unless we see a continuation of this mild weather, or the the Russia-Ukraine situation clearly begins to resolve, so that the market is not expecting an invasion with with the possible risk of a of an interruption. Um, so I would think I think people have to get paid a lot of money to say this, and if anyone takes any notice of them, so please don't. But I would think that we would see a a gradual a gradual, not a sharp, but a gradual decrease in in the price as long as we don't get very cold weather and as long as we don't get a sharp geopolitical change. Would you agree with that, Carlos? I mean, you also, you reset energy, put out a, a note yesterday about the 
about LNG and the expectations of LNG in the coming weeks? Yeah, no, definitely. I agree that prices will most likely remain at the level that we're seeing at the moment of uh, close to 80 euros per megawatt hour um, for the remainder of the winter. And they will gradually start falling towards summer. But I don't really see very little downside risk, given that there's still a lot of uncertainty on the supply. I mean, even if prices are expected to fall, but not dramatically as we could have expected in, under normal circumstances. So maybe because uh, another issue that we have at the moment is that even if um, if we come out of a mild winter and that Russian supplies don't stop, uh, we st there's still a lot of need for uh, injection into storage to replenish the low stock levels. So this will keep demand higher than on a normal summer, which will also help uh, support the prices at a higher level. You mentioned storage, Jonathan, but on the supply side, is the story all about Russia and, and the pipeline gas? I mean, is, is that what it's about and what, what Gazprom's strategy is here? I mean, it is largely about that because European and US politicians seem incapable of understanding um, as they sort of go around different suppliers asking them if they've got some more gas to sell, seem incapable of understanding that anyone with more gas to sell at these prices would already be selling it. There might be a few BCMs around on an emergency basis that could, that could be supplied, but nothing that would compensate for an interruption of supplies. Now, Gazprom's position, despite all the attacks by various different people, Gazprom's position is actually, you know, for me, very clear. They're supplying their long-term contracts. They have said that their customers are not nominating up to the maximum of those contracts. I think that could change soon, but, you know, they could have supplied more and they would have supplied more if requested. And they have no obligation to do anything else. And incidentally, although this is becoming, uh, as we move out of the winter, th things becoming easier within Russia, we estimate that Back in, back in the mid 2010s, Gazprom had a huge spare capacity that it could call upon at short notice. It now doesn't have a very significant amount of spare production capacity. So when you put all those things together and you also imagine, well, prices are incredibly high. Gazprom is earning more money from European sales than it could possibly have imagined it would do a year ago. In a sense, there's not really much incentive, uh, especially given the political situation, for Gazprom to supply more significantly more gas. The interruption issue is, of course, uh, a different question, which we might get into a bit later. What's your view here, Carlos? I read, you know, that it's part of Gazprom's strategy to force people into long-term contracts because they see that maybe the, the demand for gas is not going to be there in, in, in a few years' time. I mean, do you see that as part of the, the issue here? Well, um, not really. As Jonathan has stated, I think Gazprom has like been meeting their contractual terms and like trying to inflate prices or keep prices at a very high level could be counterproductive for them in the long term because this could only lead for European buyers to look for alternatives either in, in LNG or maybe start moving away from gas. So I don't think that, uh, I, like if it's the case, I don't think that if uh, Gazprom is wanting to keep the prices high will like really achieve the objective of uh, moving uh, buyers to sign more long-term contracts under other terms like oil indexation, for example. But you, you mentioned, Jonathan, a, a possible interruption. I mean, if something, you know, if the, the situation, the tension should escalate uh, between Russia and Ukraine and there was some kind of incursion, what kind of consequences could that have for, for gas supply? Okay, well, look, I think the most important thing here and the geopolitical discourse 
tends to completely neglect the issue of contracts. And contracts are very important because they involve money and they involve damages of very substantial proportions if those contracts are not honoured. So from the Gazprom side, they will continue to supply according to the contracts for as long as they are able to. And I don't see how that would impact any corridor, any transit corridor other than Ukraine. Now, if there are hostilities within Ukraine, again, recall that Gazprom has a ship or pay contract with the Ukrainians on a daily basis where it is required to ship or pay for a specified volume of gas. Mm. Unless the pipeline is physically interrupted, which would constitute force majeure, I think Gazprom will continue to supply. The problem comes if we have a 2009 situation when one side says we couldn't supply because the other side was either not supplying or blocking the pipeline. Then we have a really big problem because that volume of gas, which Gazprom still continues to ship through Ukraine, uh, could not possibly be made up by any other supply to the market. And that would have an immediate and very strong impact on prices. The details here seem to get lost in, in the bigger geopolitical debate. Will will the gas be cut or, or will the EU impose sanction? I think what you mentioned that Jonathan, is very important about the contractual nature of this business. But Carlos, what, what's your view here? Um, no, definitely. I think like um, there is a very low risk of seeing like uh, supply disruptions through Ukraine at the moment because of the contractual terms of the transit. Um, on the other hand, I really don't see that Russia will be uh, increasing their flows for the time being through either through Ukraine or through their other sources. I think in a way they will be waiting until Nord Stream 2 is coming online in order to be supplying uh, like substantially additional volumes of uh, gas into Europe. And the expectation probably is that uh, the current expectation is that Nord Stream 2 will only be coming online until the second half of the year if everything moves in the right direction. Uh, so then probably we will not see a substantial increase in, in supplies from Russia uh, within this first half of the year. Unless there is a like a big change in the current uh, political situation, Jonathan, you mentioned a potential repeat of a two thousand nine type situation. Now, if that were to happen, there was an interruption given that context. What would be the alternative? Where could Europe get alternative supplies from? I mean, is there? You mentioned the emergency BCMs that are sort of around here and there, but is there an alternative supply to this type of pipeline gas? In brief, no, there isn't. <laughs> Mm. And, and, and this is, this is something, as I say, that European and US politicians seem incapable of understanding. If we lose the Ukrainian corridor, that is getting on for 40 BCM on an annual basis. There's nothing out there that could compensate for that. If you add together a few BCMs here and there, you might get an additional 10. But of course, this depends a little bit on pricing. If we can bid um, supplies uh, LNG away from Asia by promising suppliers more money. We'll get more supply, but that means that the global the global supply will not increase. Just more of it will come to Europe, and so prices will go up. Um, and that, of course, is the big question for later in the year. the The only good news about this is that if that happens after, shall we say, March or April, we'll be in the Northern Hemisphere summer. So our demand will be less, so the impact will be less. But then, as Carlos mentioned a few minutes ago, that will impact the refilling of storage in Europe, which will simply store up more problems for us later in the year. 
you know, Carlos, if there is this interruption from flows through Ukraine, I mean, what would that do to current, I mean, to, to, to wholesale prices? <laughs> well, I mean, um, then definitely prices will go back to the levels that we saw in December, probably, or even higher. Like, I mean, the, the sky's the limit when it comes to mm. prices at the moment, because it has gone like above any technical ceiling. Mm. Uh, so, but definitely like any lower the supplies from Russia will lead to higher prices. And uh, because as uh, Jonathan mentioned, there is very little supply flexibility and Europe is already importing us practically as much LNG as, as they can get. The regasification terminals are operating close to 100%, which is has never been seen before. So then there's very little supply flexibility that could really uh, help adjust or balance better the market. Maybe you could see some further um, response from the power sector with uh, higher utilization of coal plants, for example, maybe trying to bring some of the nuclear plants uh, to a higher level also. But, uh, but there's also limited response uh, flexibility from the power sector that could help uh, balance the market better. And yeah, then the demand from other sectors like the residential sector is very inelastic. So then uh, basically that demand cannot really adjust down to the lower supplies. But it would cause a lot of demand destruction amongst European industry, would it not? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, we've already seen some of the large industrial consumers of gas uh, shut down their operations in order to avoid paying such high prices. So we could see a continuation of this if uh, prices go back to the levels that we saw before or stay at the current high level for a sustained uh, period of time. Jonathan, Carlos mentioned Nord Stream 2. What, what's your view here? What are your expectations? I mean, OK, if we carry on without escalation of, of or uh, military action in the Ukraine, What's your view of, of when the pipeline will become operational? This is principally a regulatory issue. So the situation is that uh, Nord Stream 2, as set up corporately, did not meet the requirements of the EU regulation. And the German regulator said this has to be a German company. So Nord Stream 2 set up a German subsidiary. I read today that they said they would not restart the certification process because the assets of Nord Stream 2 had not yet been moved into the German subsidiary. So we're waiting for that to happen. There's then a statutory period, and I think it's two months, which the German regulator has to complete the certification or give reasons why it is refusing to complete the certification. At that point, there can be objections from, from Brussels. There can be further regulatory debate. And the question then is, assuming that Binetza has actually certified Nord Stream 2, the question then is, does gas start to flow while those objections are continuing? Or does, or does the flow of gas have to wait until all of the objections are resolved? And I don't think anyone really knows the answer to that yet. But it seems to me likely that, you know, as we probably certification will start again around March time and then we'll go into April, May, maybe June. At that point, we have an interesting question as to have they certified? If they haven't, why haven't they certified? If they have certified, and others have raised objections, like probably the Poles, maybe Brussels. What happens after that? But then, then we're also 
in in the summer months where demand is less and maybe prices have really come off. So it's not so urgent to get the gas flowing again, unless to fill storage. I think that's right. Well, filling storage is urgent. <laughs> but I think I think the other question, which which again I think we're not clear about, is supposing Nord Stream two starts up. Does this actually mean additional Russian gas for Europe, or does it simply mean that Gazprom is moving gas out of other corridors into Nord Stream 2 and not increasing its total supplies to Europe? I don't think anyone really knows the answer to that question. The hope is that it means additional Russian gas, but if they insist on continuing just to sue, just to meet um, long-term contract obligations, then it wouldn't. No net change. There's no net increase. That is at least the possibility, a, a possibility that there will be no net increase. Uh, and, and it's taking a very long time, partly because the people who are writing about the politics simply don't understand the gas market. It's taking a very long time for people to understand what the Russians have always said, which is they will honor long-term contracts and anything else you know, will, will be a, a product of what they, what they see in market conditions at the time. Dictating. Do you think, though, that the EC, you know, the European Commission can raise objections, but it can't put the kibosh on the project? It can't just basically order the scrapping of it? So this is, a, this is again, a very interesting legal regulatory question. The reason we, we, we created all this regulation in Europe over the past 30 years is to stop politicians making political decisions on commercial assets. So there is a very clear a regulatory structure set out for this kind of infrastructure. And it's already been changed several times in order to make Nord Stream 2 much more complicated. Now, one question for lawyers is, suppose there is uh, an invasion by the Russians of Ukraine, however you want to define that. Is that a legal reason for refusing to allow Nord Stream 2 gas to flow? I, I don't know. But I can't really see that it is because it's not force majeure. Force majeure is where you have a situation where physically the gas cannot flow because of military hostilities. But there won't be military hostilities in the area of Nord Stream 2. So a political decision which said, we're not going to allow you to flow Nord Stream 2, it seems to me could give rise to a situation where everyone concerned with Nord Stream 2 sues the German government. Basically, I've calculated there's about 40 billion euros of damages waiting if this project is cancelled. Mm -hmm. And I'm not sure, but as a, I'm not an international lawyer, I'm not sure that a Russian invasion of Ukraine constitutes a legal reason not to allow Nord Stream 2 to float. That's a very interesting perspective, John. I mean, Carlos, what's your view on, for example, the flows coming from Russia? Do you expect a net increase? As Jonathan is saying, that's really unsure what, what the actual Nord Stream 2 will contribute to overall supply. I mean, I think with the current high prices, we could see um, slightly higher supplies from Russia if uh, Nord Stream 2 comes online, because uh, it would be a good opportunity for Gazprom to sell into like more volumes and receive a, a higher, like get higher revenues with the, the current high prices. So there is a possibility of seeing slightly higher supplies. But uh, as uh, Jonathan said, also, I don't think it will lead to a, like a substantial increase in exports um, because they will be first meeting their their contractual terms and then they will be supplying any additional gas that is needed within Europe. But uh, 
there's also the the large need for replenishing the stock levels during the summer. So if um, if this pipeline comes online, then maybe that could be a good opportunity to send, send additional volumes into the region and, and help balance the market better. Jonathan, are we currently also being helped by a relatively mild winter in Northeast Asia? Yes, we are. And also the, the, the feeling that uh, those countries have filled their storages, so they're no longer panicking about LNG. Um, uh, uh, but what happens in Asia is absolutely critical here, and particularly what happens in China. I mean, we've all we've all suddenly, <laughs> in the last six to twelve months, had to focus on what's happening in the Chinese economy, what's happening with Chinese energy demand, which means you know not just gas demand but coal demand. What what is China? What is the policy of the Chinese government in relation to more or less LNG? All of this really does impact the global situation and therefore the situation in Europe. Uh, you know, we're, we're at the moment not seeing uh, Japanese nuclear stations reopening on anything like the schedule that was hoped for uh, a year ago. And that's another reason why the, the balance, the global balance is so tight. So, uh, you know, we've all had to become, quote unquote, experts on the Asian situation, in addition to actually what we're what we're focusing on mainly, which is Europe. Absolutely. And that adds to the complexity of the whole picture. If I, if I can just close by asking you first, Jonathan, and then Carlos, what do you think this energy crisis means for, um, for the long term or the medium future of gas in Europe? I mean, do you expect the green transition to be expedited, to be sped up, or will there be calls for, for, for more backup in terms of gas reserves, maybe an EU-wide one or a national, on a national basis? What, what do you think, Jonathan? You know, this is really complicated because people who are calling for more storage don't seem to understand that if you're going for transition and meeting uh, very stringent net zero targets um, and, and big targets by 2030, the last thing you want to be doing is pouring large amounts of money into fossil fuel assets like gas storages. Yes, of course, the transition will continue. But will it be speeded up by this? Well, logically, it should be because obviously, you know, governments can make the case. This is why we have to move out of fossil fuels. Uh, because they, they've become so expensive. The question is, how quickly can that happen? I rather expect that it, this to happen in transport rather much faster than stationary uses, which impacts gas. There will be a lot of impetus behind this, but essentially it depends on a lot of other complicated things like massively increasing renewables and then the resilience against um, intermittent renewables, uh, technologies like uh, hydrogen, um, like carbon capture and storage. And these are really big subjects in their own right and probably have lead times of more like 10 to 15 years than, you know, three to five years. What do you think, Carlos? Is the end of gas in sight or is it still continued as a bridge? I don't think it's inside in the short term, but definitely this crisis um, comes at a very time, a very bad time for the gas industry, because uh, I mean, there has already been a lot of questions in Europe about, about uh, labeling gas as a green transition fuel or not. And obviously, all this situation is just uh, not is working against the natural gas, uh, because then a lot of the European governments are seeing that this is an opportunity to push for more renewable energy capacity and other technologies like CCS and hydrogen. Um, so then 
Definitely. Um, I think this will be impacting the, the decisions that are taken in the within the next years when it comes to like Europe's dependency on energy imports and how to reduce their dependency on this and be like uh, to be less uh, uh, less vulnerable to what happens in other parts of the world. So I think, I mean, as uh, Jonathan also already mentioned, it's not easy to just reduce dependency from gas from one day to the, uh, to the other. Um, and this will take some time, but definitely it's not helping um, justify more investments in gas infrastructure in the short term. Gentlemen, thank you very much for, for joining the Monto Weekly podcast this week. I hope some of the politicians can listen to some of the gas market experts as well. But thank you. Pleasure. Thank you very much. So listeners, you can now follow the podcast on our own Twitter account, aptly named the Monto Weekly podcast. Please direct message any suggestions, questions, or you know, let us know if you, if you think you have a good idea for a guest on the show. You can also send us an email to podcast at montelnews.com. Lastly, remember to keep up to date with all that's happening in energy markets on Montel News. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts and Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts from. Thank you and goodbye.